Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Tonight, I'm joined by Gwen Clapper. She used to be an EMT, a firefighter, and a policewoman. And that is not all. She's also got her own production company. Hey, Gwen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I tell you what, you are very interesting to me, and you happen to be a friend of one of my very good friends, Vanessa Hogel. And we will get into what you guys do with your production company. Um, But right now, I really would love to talk to you about your career as an EMT, firefighter, and a police officer. Tell me everything you can about that and and when you started and and how long you were in the force. Actually, I was an EMT for a little over 20 years, and I was a police officer only for a couple of years, and then I did firefighting for the last, uh, I'd say, about five or six years of my EMT career. So did you want to go into like different kinds or is it, did it just kind of morph into that? How did that happen? Um, I kind of morphed into it. Uh, I, I was working doing these jobs in a rural, very rural area. And it's actually not uncommon. Um, it's <laughs> a lot of people who start off in one typically end up doing one of the other ones. Um, not necessarily all three. But it does happen. My brother-in-law, as a matter of fact, he did all three for a very long time. He's still a police officer and is still active with the fire department as well. Oh, wow. Okay, so did you start off as an EMT in the medical field first? Yes, actually. Actually, I started off as a uh, CNA, a certified nursing assistant. Um, My first job was with the local hospital there in the area. I was uh, 21. I had just turned 21. And I got my CNA and started working with the hospital. And while on a break, I was talking with another CNA, and she was taking EMT classes. And she was actually the one that got me interested. Um, During that time, in the rural areas, you just went, you signed up, you paid your book fees and your dues and stuff. It was like a six- to eight-month class, something like that. It's much longer now. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but at the time, I think I want to say it was like a six- to eight-month class. You just took the class, and you, you, know, you did your, uh, your ride time, and you had to do your state final exams. And if you passed, you passed. If you didn't, you retested. Oh, okay. I see. So you're only like 20 years old, so you were fresh out of the, the gate there. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was still right wet behind the ears. Well, and I'm sure, because we're going to get there, I'm sure you have seen some things. Oh, I have seen things that I could have gone a lifetime without seeing. <laughs> oh, I, I can only imagine because, you know, not only just being an EMT and having to go to, I assume, sites where there have been accidents or trauma or whatever the case is, that alone has stories. But girl, being a policewoman or a police officer and also a firefighter, right? (laughs) I'll get that right. First of all, tell me a story or some kind of situation that got you, because I really am curious to know how this affected you, especially you being the only woman. You and I talked before, so I kind of know that already. How did that affect you? Well, being in a rural area, number one, it's different. Oh, I'm sure. Metro area. There's still uh, gender roles, if you will. Right. As wrong as people may say that that is, it is still done today. 
Not that I agree with it, because I do not. But I was the first female police officer for that particular police department, and I was also the first female fire person to be on a particular fire department that I was a paid EMT. Wow. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, you know, the first one, as far as the police department goes, that I was employed with. I was the first, and as far as I am aware, I have been the last female police officer. So (laughs) take what you may from that. Oh, well, that kind of gives you a story right there. Yeah. (laughs) So it was difficult. It was a learning experience. I learned a lot about humans. (laughs) I'm sure. Yes. Right. Um, I have seen the good in people. I have seen the bad. I've seen, I have faced evil directly in the face. I I can only imagine with the kind of work you did. Times that um, even in a small little rural town, there were a couple of times that I wasn't sure if I was going to make it back home to my family. Oh my gosh. It was a couple of times that I had to draw my weapon. I was on that department about a year and a half, two years. It wasn't long. I probably had to draw my weapon four or five times, and I had my finger on the trigger twice. Of one of those times, the sidearm that I used was a Glock 40. For those that don't know, a Glock 40 has uh, a four pounds of pressure uh, trigger pull, uh, four pounds of pressure. The safety is actually built into the trigger. And once you pull past a certain amount of pressure, the safety releases. Uh, one of those two times, I remember feeling the safety release. Oh, I bet that kind of got you, right? That was, yeah. The guys finally, thankfully, followed orders. It Gosh. Was it was bad. Uh, <laughs> my knees were like jelly. Uh, yeah. So, and and yeah. especially so, if you were by yourself. I don't know if you had a partner it's, or. It's not a good decision to have to make. And did you have a partner at the time, or were you by yourself? What? We ride solo. Oh, my goodness. You were not a big being woman. A rural, so. No, no, no. Being in a rural area, the county that I was in, the deputies would mark off on the radio at midnight. If the town officer would say if I was working at the graveyard shift, you had all the deputies marking off shift. Everybody knew that Gwen was out there by herself. That seems, first of all, dangerous. Second of all, very scary for you. And thirdly, um, deadly. Uh, what were they thinking? Yeah, but it wasn't just me. It was, it was like that for any officer that would be working the town. The deputies, when they mocked off, they mocked off on the radio. So any town officer that was out there, they were out there by themselves. If something went down, they had to wait for the nearest state unit to get to them. State unit could be 40 minutes out. Mm. My goodness. So you had to hold it down until your backup got there. Wow. The thought of, like you said earlier, I may not make it home tonight. Yeah, exactly. And mind y'all, I, at the time, of course, I'm still about five foot one, have weighed 120 pounds. Yeah, you're just a tiny thing. My uniform, my vest and gun belt weighed more than me. Well, but for you to also have been a firefighter, you you had some guns on you. And I mean, good arms. (laughs) Pardon the pun. Firefighting, that, that's another thing, too, what was difficult with, with the fire training. Unlike the police academy, where your female cadets and male cadets had two different requirements as far as physical critiques. With fire, now in the rural areas, again, metro may be different, but in the rural fire, when you're training for your firefighter one and firefighter two and so forth, there is no separation of credentials. 
you do what the guys do. That just blows me away, I have to say. I mean, there should be two different classes. No, actually, I prefer it that way, and I'm going to tell you why. If you're in a fire, you usually go in with at least three on, on the line, which means three on the hose, one on the nozzle and two behind. Okay. Um, if you're going in an inferno and one of them becomes incapacitated or their air is running out, if you're not able to get your brother or sister out of there, you should not be in there. If you cannot fire carry them, if you cannot get them and yourself out, you are a liability. Mm, I see your point. Yes. There was a gentleman on my fire department, respectively, big dude. Anybody who's local that's, that may be listening to this, they're going to bust out laughing because they're going to know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> I will say that everybody called him Teddy Bear. Love the guy. Uh, we were training, and his air pack was running out. He's a big guy. He sucks a, He sucks an air pack down quick. And I grabbed him, and I was literally dragging him out the, out the uh, burn building. And granted, it was a training exercise. Wow. And I was dragging him. Now, this man is well over six foot four, and he's every bit of, I would say, probably 280, 300. That's like triple your size. Yeah, but I dragged him out. Did it take me a minute? Yeah. Was I hurting? Yeah. <laughs> but I got him out of there. I have to. He has a family, too, that depends on me to get him out. You It's almost like your mama bear kicked in. You, you hear those stories about, you know, when moms lift cars to get their kids out of harm's way or whatever it is, and they can do miraculous things when the adrenaline kicks in and they're determined, and it was almost maybe like that for you, huh? Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what it's like. And also being a female and being a small female and working and doing mainly male-dominated roles in the area that I was in. Right, I right. to work harder to prove myself and to be taken seriously because we did have females that came through that were doing these things to be cute, to get popular and to make friends. And they really pissed me off. I worked hard to kick open this door. Mm -hmm. I ain't got time for your games. Yeah. <laughs> time for you to be putting on your makeup when we got a cardiac arrest five minutes up the road. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. You're probably just like, really? Seriously? I, you and I had talked a couple weeks ago, and we talked about an experience that you um, saw pretty early on. And I don't know if it was when you were a firefighter or when you're a police officer or just an EMT. I don't remember what you said about that particular thing. I just remember you said that you tried to save someone in a burning car. Yes, yes. That was early on. I was um, in EMT class. I was still a CNA for the hospital, and I was in EMT class. I haven't even thought about becoming a police officer or a firefighter. And I was on my way to go to the mall. And I'm heading 95 northbound, and right before I get to the 85-95 merger, there's an exit right there. And I witnessed a vehicle lose control, hit another vehicle, and the vehicle actually caught fire that it struck. Both of them did, but the, one, the, the vehicle that struck the other vehicle, they were okay. The vehicle that caught fire, me and several other drivers stopped, and we were trying to get the people out of the vehicle because it was on fire. Mm, mm. We could not get near that vehicle. It was an inferno immediately. 
the hair on my forehead and my arms, um, I lost my eyebrows. They were singed. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I got basically almost a second-degree burn. It looked like I had a very bad sunburn. We were probably a good, I don't know, maybe 12, 14 feet away from the vehicle. And I remember hearing mm. the people inside. I cannot... I have a hard time wrapping my brain around that because you, you see those kinds of things in, on TV and in movies, and, but to hear it actually happen, how did that affect you how, as far as like being a mother and being a wife and, and a daughter? And a... It, it affected me to the point, my daughter, who is now 22, she was just a baby. I mean, she was an infant, uh, not even quite a toddler at the time. Mm-hmm. It affected me to the point that I naturally, I just went back home trying to take care of my wounds. And I went up to the squad building and um, the guy that was training me was actually treating my wounds for me. And I told him I was not going back to EMT class. Oh, um, wow. Uh, he pointed out because of the way it was affecting me, is the reason for me to push on, because of my empathy, that this is why I needed to continue to do what I was doing, because I gave a damn. Right, and, and I think, I, I would assume, I, I, I say that, I may be wrong, I think the majority of people do have the best intentions if they want to go into this kind of business, I would hope. There's a lot of good officers out there. There are, but they are sadly outshadowed by the ones who should not be carrying a badge. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, right. You have officers that started off good officers, very good intentions, but they are burnt out. They're exhausted. They're drained. They're tired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Making excuses for some of the behaviors um, because people do need to be held accountable for what they do. Right. But I think it's more of a explanation Please, nobody take this the wrong way. I'm not making excuses. Uh, People do need to be held accountable for what they do. And some of the behavior we've seen recently, I do not condone at all. Um, Right, right. Held accountable to the highest extent of the law. There's no rhyme or reason for some of the things that we've been seeing going on. Because Gwen, they've been trained. I mean, in in high stress situations, even the situation you just told me about the 280 pound six foot four man um that was a training exercise and you still had your wherewithal um okay yes you knew it was a training exercise but you were still expected to do the right thing um even under duress even under that circumstance and you're right these people these police officers or whoever it is going out to some of these rights and i don't want to get all political or all whatever but yeah these 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 police officers do need to be held accountable for i do think you're right though i do think they're exhausted i do think that they get a bad rap sometimes not always but i think the ones that have been on the news lately have not i think they need to be punished so i'm glad about that right right i I do i do feel that we as a society have gotten away from accountability Period. Yes. Everybody can blame somebody else for the reason why they're doing what they're doing. Um, we need to stop that as a society. I agree. Um, period. And I see people all the time talking about where well, the officers need more training. I agree. I, I do agree. More training would be great. But this is the problem. You have a supply and demand. Okay. Mm, right. And it's kind of like it's kind of like an assembly line. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you have your local officers, let's say you have your town officers and your deputies, 
okay, mm-hmm. who do their training. If they wish to become state police, their previous training does not count. Oh, really? No, I know that to be true for the state of Virginia. They have to go through complete new training. None of the previous training counts, which is fine. Right. But the problem is, now, with Virginia State Police, it's more intensive training, as it should be, because you have state jurisdiction. Sure, sure. Okay. But with your local, which would be your town and your uh, deputies, the training course, I'm not too sure how long it is now, but it was less than 32 weeks when I went through it. Back in 2000, tell them my age. But the thing is, you go through your basic training mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not spend enough time on mental health. There's not enough time allotted to train somebody to handle mental patients or mental emergencies. Oh, wow. Okay. You are trained to try to identify it, and then you notify the proper authorities to come and handle it. Mm-hmm. That can take time. A lot of things can happen in that 30, 40, 50-minute time frame. Sure. And if you live in a rural area, 30 minutes of CPR, 40 minutes of CPR, this is not what you see on TV, people. We don't go in there and shock them and they sit up and start talking to us. That's the biggest load of crap I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that's, not, that's why I don't watch those shows. I don't watch Chicago, that was it, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire. I don't watch none of that crap because all it does is piss me off. Well, you've lived it. You know. I mean, you had. You know what? I want to change directions on you now because I want to hear all about Perfect Productions. The reason I want to hear about this is because our friend Vanessa Hogel, who also is a psychic medium, and you from uh, I found out the last time we spoke, and I was so surprised. I had no idea you were clairvoyant. Explain that to people that don't know what that is. Clairvoyant. The best way that I can describe it to people, and I've been like this ever since I was a kid. I can see, it's like, sometimes it looks like a picture, like they're showing me a picture of something that happened in their life. Sometimes it looks like a short film, like like a mini movie. Okay. I can see things. Somebody can show me a picture. I've actually done this for several friends on Facebook. They'll send me a picture, and I can see things, see in quotations, in the picture that normal people can't see with the regular eye. Oh, yeah. Well, me bringing up Perfect Trust Productions, you and Vanessa Hogel, you both have gifts, and you both go to places and investigate. Recently, you guys went to Ireland and even have a couple episodes on Amazon and now on YouTube. Um, And I know you're planning another trip to Scotland. Tell us a little bit about your trip to Ireland and kind of what you wanted to go accomplish for all the viewers that or listeners that don't know about that. Okay, yes. Uh, Hidden Gems, Ireland. The first two episodes are on Amazon Prime. One, two, eight have been released on our YouTube channel. Um, you can just go in and type in Perfect Trust Productions and we'll pop right up. Okay. Um, yeah, um, real easy to find. Our main focus is finding these hidden gems. Some of these places you may have heard about, but we do a different take on it. We try to find the more historical values on these places, the okay. more in-depth backstories. Um, the people who live in the areas, not the whole celebrity hubbub, you know, the actual people, the, the local townsfolk and the, the lore, and we try to find facts and, you know, 
the, the nitty gritty. Right. And the history of everything so that if there are specific people that are left behind, uh, and I'm using the word, word loosely, ghosts or spirit or whatever, you guys try to help those spirit or ghosts, yeah. correct? Yes, absolutely. We, we like I said, we, we do focus on the historical factors because a lot of the times people overlook the history of the location that they're investigating, and they'll get paranormal activity, and they don't understand it. Well, if you look into the history of the location, you may understand the paranormal activity a little bit better, and you may be able to help them or at least communicate with them better. Right, right. An understanding of what the heck's going on. Oh, I totally agree, because I've seen enough, and I've, I've, I've interviewed enough people that do paranormal um, investigations, and if you don't have the history and you just go in willy-nilly telling people to show themselves and trying to tick them off, you're not going to get anything right. but bad stuff happening. Yeah, we don't. We believe in uh, documentation without provocation. I don't like going in. You're, that's their turf. It's like somebody coming in your house and making demands. Nobody likes to be forgotten or disrespected or ignored alive, much less dead. Well, and I think it's also nice that you guys are doing like a tribute to these people that are no longer able to speak for themselves, but also letting people know this is what happened. Here's the evidence we've captured. None of it is provoked. None of it is fake. None of it is produced. I love that you guys are real. You're not trying to put on something uh, for a show. It, it, you may not find a damn thing. Right. And we, we tell people all the time, if we catch something that's unexplained, cool. If not, we're okay with that too. Right. Because the story of the location, the people that we meet, where we capture in pictures, on video, to show people, to share with everybody, that's what it's about. Absolutely. Because a lot, a lot of these people, uh, Miss Mary, that we interviewed uh, for episode three, she's the uh, matriarch of the town that we were showcasing, basically. Okay. She's up in age, and one day she's not going to be there, but her stories are now going to live forever. I think that's amazing, and I, I really do, and I think that's why you guys are so successful at this, because I don't know if it's karma, I don't know if it's just because it's a good thing you're doing it. All I know is you're, you're doing it the right way and you care. Yeah. And much like some of these investigations, cause you know, also, also have my, my other team that, that I work with beyond perception investigators. We've worked a lot of cases and just like that car that was on fire, I wake up at night sometimes thinking about some of these cases and it, it's uh, just like that car that was on fire. You know, I, I still have some of these cases that we've worked that I know we need to go back to these locations and try harder and try to help these entities or these spirits because, you know, we may have been at a location where one of them scratched us or one of them might have pushed us, but I didn't take it as them being mean. I think they were trying just to get some help. They were trying to get attention, and we got to figure out what is going on. Right, and I have to ask you, Gwen, when people die, this is what I believe. When you die, you go, your spirit moves on, okay, wherever that goes. We, nobody knows. We'll figure all that out when we die. I think spirits visit, and I think there are ghosts that are stuck. Do you think that's a true statement, and why do you think they would stay? Is it because they had a tragedy or because they don't have closure or they're angry or they're afraid or whatever it is? I think if, if somebody dies unexpectedly or tragically, quickly, um, let's say a blunt force trauma, totally out of the blue. 
Right. Uh, and it happens so quickly. Actually, it's been scientifically proven that people that suffer concussions typically don't have memory of the previous 10 minutes before the concussion. And I can attest to that because that happened to my husband. See? Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. Yes. So let's say you take that. If you can't remember the 10 minutes before you got knocked out, that you know, you pull through it, you know, you wake up, you're in the hospital, you're like, you know, what the heck? But you don't remember the 10 minutes, but you're alive. Right. Can you imagine the confusion in a death state? No, you make a good point. That's a very valid point. You know, could you fathom the confusion in the death state, standing there, looking at your family, looking at you, but kind of like what what you would see in, in a movie, you know, I'm right here, guys, I'm okay, but nobody can hear you, nobody can see you. Could you imagine what, let's just say that's what it's like. An eternity like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. An eternity like that. Right. I could see somebody being stuck like that. And that's what you do. You guys go there. It's almost like you're rescuing someone who's hanging from a cliff. You're going to give them a line, pull them back up and explain what's going on. And then you can go on. You're free. This is what you can do. Is that kind of what you're doing? Basically, we have had, um, uh, we've been to locations that we have gotten um, some captures. I don't like to call it evidence. We've done our research, put two and two together, and we would speak with the clients later, and things were either much better, they would still have activity but not as bad, or the activity has ceased altogether. And a lot of times we feel they just want it to be heard. They get their story out. They're like, okay, I'm good. Like if they had been, if, if it was an unsolved case for whatever it is, or, uh, you know, or, or they wanted to say they're sorry or closure with another living relative, I can see a lot of things that would keep you from going, whatever you want to call it, into the light or however you want to say it. I can see right. why people would do that. I, I can see, but I also, I also see a, a different point of view too. I can see some staying back because they want to. I think some stay back as a choice. I listened to one near-death podcast, and they've come back to talk about it. Several of them have done it quickly. They didn't even realize what happened, but they just go on, and they had a choice to come back, and they were told some things and came back. But obviously, it differs for every person. Maybe they can decide, I don't want to go back, but I don't want to go with you either. I don't know how it works. Right, right. But I, I think sometimes when they enter that death state, depending on their circumstances, um, how they died, um, also how they lived, that they don't have actually a, um, a destination to go to if they wish to stay back because they have not necessarily unfinished business, but because they have other loved ones still in the living realm that they kind of want to keep an eye on. Right, right. It's not saying that they have to actually go to heaven, if that's what you believe in, sure. or into another spirit realm. I believe that sometimes they just kind of hang back to kind of, you know, keep an eye on things. I think that happens probably more often than not. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, my thing is, okay, they've passed. They're dead. Who's going to really make them go anywhere? It's free will, I would assume. Exactly. I'm a big believer in free will, and I'm going to tell you this right now. And I don't know if any of my family or friends will actually hear this that, that knew my father. I believe that that's what my dad does. I'm a big believer that my father is hanging back. <laughs> but you know what, Gwen, I would be so comforted by that. I really would, um, especially if you guys were close. So 
what a gift that he can still kind of keep being your dad, whether he's in this realm or another or with God or not, or whatever you believe. But anyway, I know you have to go. So tell everyone where they can find you on social media, the name of your production company and your film, everything that's coming up for you guys. Just go to www.perfecttrustproductions.com. If you go there, you'll see the tabs up at the top. It'll take you to everything. We've got all our social media links, our shopping links to, um, we got a new platform on redbubble.com. And we got our Teespring now. Everything, every social media platform, our YouTube, you can see all of our videos. Absolutely. And you guys got some fantastic merchandise. And Vanessa has beautiful tarot cards. And you guys, you got to check them out. It's Red, Red Bubble, correct? Yes, Red, yes, Red Bubble. And like I said, you can find all of that on the perfecttrustproductions.com. Now, if you want the tarot cards, you have to contact Vanessa. Okay, yes, gotcha. Okay. Separate, but she's real easy to find. Um, her website is vanessahogel.com. So if you're interested in a reading or her tarot cards, just go on there and click on the contact me page on her website and fill it out. Let her know what you want and we'll be in contact with you. You have been amazing. And, and maybe I'll have you back. And Gwen, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I actually had a really good time and I'm sorry if I talked your ear off. (laughs) If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.